You're listening to sermon audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. Look with me if you have your Bibles. Psalm 11 says to the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning um, glad to be together on the Lord's day. We thank you for your word that you've not left us hopeless and lost as to what to think or believe about your nature and character, your law and your gospel. And we pray this morning that um, your word would be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that it would encourage our hearts and strengthen our conviction and our resolve in the war we fight to see your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I've got a dad joke for you guys. You either all have a dad or are one or both. And so here's a dad joke. What's the difference between an optimist and a pessimist? The the pessimist says, things can't get any worse. And the optimist says, yes, they can. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) I say that we're going to get into a little bit of optimism and pessimism. But we take the summer, as we do most summers, to preach through the Psalms. And that's one of my favorite rhythms that we have as a church. Um, So I'm glad glad we're preaching through the Psalms. I like the Psalms. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 11. And it's a psalm of David, like many are. And we're going to see a conversation between David, the lion-hearted shepherd king of Israel, and who I'm going to call the cowardly counselor. We don't know their name necessarily. We don't know uh, what, what, uh, what trial David is going through specifically. Some, some psalms let you know which one, um, but this one we don't know for sure. But we've got David and we've got the cowardly counselor. And we're going to see essentially a picture of Christian optimism versus sinful pessimism. So David was in the midst of some battle some war. He had some enemies closing in on him, and we don't know the event specifically, but the truths of this psalm are enduring. And in the midst of David facing off against his enemies, he has someone attempting to give him counsel. And this counselor sees the situation essentially as hopeless and encourages David to run and hide. That's what we see. And I think we live in a fairly hopeless age, a pretty hopeless Uh, culture and society that I would even say is careening towards nihilism, that just nothing matters. Like everything is bad and nothing matters, which is kind of contradictory. But the belief that nothing matters is nihilism. And I think we're headed towards that. And so I think our society and even our church could use a stiff dose of the doctrine of God this morning. So um, I, I think that Psalm 11 will encourage us And when you think about the word encourage, it's literally to put courage in. And so I I hope that Psalm 11 encourages you the way it's been encouraging me this week as I've been preparing. And um, I I hope it puts fire in your hearts. I want us to have a distinctly Christian, optimistic hope 
for how God is fighting in the war that he's in. And so uh, I do want to say at the outset, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I know Paul says that. Um, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So when I talk about war and warfare, um, it's going to be a little bit different from David in the sense that he was fighting uh, flesh and blood enemies physically with physical swords, right? We're not talking about that. Our war is against, as Paul says in Ephesians, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And even in 2 Corinthians, he says, we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So in our battle, we're not, uh, we're not crushing physical strongholds. We're taking captive thoughts, not captive men, right? Um, so our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against cosmic powers of darkness and arguments and opinions and thoughts raised against Christ. But these opinions and these arguments are held and lived out through flesh and blood people. And so when we see David talk about the wicked, when you see that in scripture, they are flesh and blood people. It's not like we want to spiritualize this completely and say the wicked is only the devil. No, there are wicked people that hold these thoughts, these opinions, these arguments against the Lord, and we are to destroy their arguments, and we want to win the man. We want to, we want to win them over to the side of Christ. We want to see them come from darkness to light, but we're not going to physically kill them to do it. <laughs> that's a little different from David. So that's who the wicked is that we're talking about. And David, although not a perfect man, did understand some things well. He understood war. He knew that he was at war and he had a right perspective about it. Many of us, I would say, don't even know that we're at war. And that's, that's a tragedy. Many of us don't know we're at war in the Christian life, and we are. We have enemies. There are battlefields to be won. There are weapons of warfare that Paul talks about that are mighty. And if you don't know that you're in war, You're not going to take hold of a lot of those things. And so we need to know that we are in a spiritual war and that the Christian is part of it. And we need to have a right perspective, not a wrong perspective on that war. So a wrong perspective is going to be what we see here in uh, verses one through three from the cowardly counselor. So David begins with his strong declaration, verse one, in the Lord, I take refuge. The Lord is my safe place. He's my fortress. He's my he's my refuge. Right. But then he says, how can you, whoever it is he's talking to, how can you say to my soul in light of that truth, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So these words, what we see in verses one and two from the cowardly counselor come almost certainly from a, from a place of great love and care for David, Right? but they're sinfully fearful, and I'll talk about why. This is, this is the advice of a coward. This, this is the advice of a coward. He, he is talking about running and running from the battle. Now, I will say there are times when we should run. There's times when you should walk away from a fight or a battle, um, and so uh, it's, not, it's not always this way, but there are, because there is such a thing as a strategic retreat. There's such a thing as a reckless advance in battle. Wars are won through battles, retreats and advances. But it seems like what David's counselor is advising him to do is to leave the battle altogether, right? To take the L, take the loss, cut your losses and run. Consider the wicked are too strong, too stealthy. Their victory is too certain. And that is sinful cowardice. 
And so there are situations we should flee from. Specifically, the Bible says we should flee from sin, flee from temptation. We're commanded to. No amount of bravado or Christian confidence in the Lord says, yeah, stay in a very tempting situation. That's, that's obviously not true. But we are to resist the devil and he flees from us, right? Not all situations call for fleeing. We are to make war. We are to fight. We are to resist the devil and he will flee from us and we're to tread on the serpent's head. Christians are to advance. And so we don't run from the battle for safety David says we run to the Lord for safety. And what he's getting at here is he's saying, the Lord is my refuge. And if you read scripture, you know that the Lord is also a man of war. God is in the midst of a battle. Psalm 110 says that God rules in the midst of his enemies. He is in the middle of the action. Jesus is taking dominion. Jesus is not running. Jesus is not an escapist. Right? So if you are running to him as your refuge, you should expect more battles, not less. More conflict with the enemy, not less. A bigger target on your back, not a smaller one. More slander against you, more reviling, more dishonesty from your enemies, not less. God is saying that from his perspective, that is true safety. That is real refuge. And our worldly perspective would tell us that avoiding conflict is safety. Right? That's, that feels natural to me. Avoid conflict. Don't say anything that would make any waves. Avoid conflict. That's safety. Avoid danger. That's safety. Avoid battles. That's safety. But Psalm 11 is telling us something very different. David is saying that staying in the fight and trusting the Lord is safety. Following the character of God, following God's will is actual safety. And I know that, you know, when we talk about optimism, pessimism, those of us who are prone to pessimism, and sometimes I am, that we're quick to defend our pessimism and our sinful pessimism and cowardice as just realism. I'm just being realistic. Look, you can say what you want. I'm just being realistic, right? That's often true. To be sure, right, we live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Battles are going to be lost. People are going to walk away um, and not come back. And, and you can have a realistic point of view and say, I think that's what's happening right now. But we should not mask sinful pessimism as mere realism. I'm just being realistic, right? We fall into that sinful category, I think, when we lose sight of God's sovereign hand directing all the failures, all the lost battles for our good, steering the course of history to his will. When we miss the goodness of his plan, even during bitter times of providence, when our faux realism turns into hopelessness, that's a sign that we've strayed too far. Because at that point, it's not even realism. It's not realism at that point. It's not being realistic. Hopelessness is not realistic from the Christian perspective because the reality, the actual realistic point of view, is that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that we are more than conquerors even when they take our lives, even when they saw us in two. The reality is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That's actual reality, right? The reality is that at the end of the story, we, it, the end of the story holds a people that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. The reality is that Paul ends his letter of Romans saying the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So that is reality. That is true realism. Being truly realistic, Christians should be the most optimistic people on earth, and hopelessness has no place in the Christian life.
So then we see in verse three, the cowardly counselor finishes his, his fearful advice with, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is looking really bad, David. If the foundations are gone, what can we do? That's the last piece of his fearful advice is, is this rhetorical question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They are arguing that once foundations are lost, once the base of everything, you know, once, the, once the floor falls out, what are we going to do? And in general, this is true. Again, all these things have a, have a ring of truth to them. It's true that once you lose your foundation, you're done. And Jesus actually talks about this in the Gospels. He says, if you build on sand, when the storm comes and your foundation's swept away, you're swept away with it. That's it, right? You have to build your house on the rock. And so, like much worldly advice, it has the appearance of wisdom. But we have to ask the question, from this cowardly counselor's perspective, what are the foundations? What is this thing that you think is going to be lost? And so it's a couple things. It could be in reference to maybe the ruling class of Israel, right? Like once the righteous people of Israel lose their leaders, you know, then they're really going to be lost. That could be what they're talking about. Cynically, they might be talking about themselves like, David, we got to get out of here because I might die and the people really need me. <laughs> so like we got to get me to safety, right? Um, or even charitably, they might just be talking about David. They might say like, hey, if you die, if you fall in battle, like what are we going to do? Like, We're going to be lost without you. That's the most charitable reading. But what does David seem to think that the foundations of Israel are? So the very last thing that the cowardly counselor says is, if the, if the foundations are lost, what do we do? Verse four, the Lord's in his temple. The Lord's on his throne in heaven. That's David's response. What does David think the foundation of, the, of Israel is? The Lord, right? So they ask, if the wicked destroy our foundations, what will we do? David responds, they can't, they can't. Israel is built on something more solid, more sure, more certain than any human leader, any foundation, any institute, any ruler law. And today the church is built on the very same foundation. The church is built on Christ. And Jesus says he is the cornerstone. He is the firm foundation. He is the rock and everything else is sinking sand. And so I hear a lot of worry from Christians these days that the world is becoming so degenerate and so depraved, and it is, <laughs> it certainly is, but so degenerate that it's too far gone and wondering if the church will even survive. And I, it, to me, it sounds like they've completely forgotten that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen? Right? So we, we are not fighting a defensive war. Jesus says that Satan has gates and we're going to kick them in. We're not worried about coming for us. You come for us. You take my life, you send me straight to the king. You have gates and they are flimsy and we will kick them in. That's Jesus's perspective. He is our firm foundation. And like David says, you can't destroy it. That is our firm hope. And we know, right, we know that uh, God is reigning on his throne. He's not afraid of the wicked. They should be afraid of him and us. Verse five, David says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. So David's kind of bringing in here, he's trying to counsel back this cowardly counselor. He's saying, yes, the Lord does test us. Yes, there are hard times. Yes, we will lose battles. Yes, there will be difficulty. But that's, he's just testing. That's just for our good. He hates them. He hates the wicked. They're gonna fall. We're not gonna fall. This is just a test. And so he says, the Lord tests his people, hates the wicked, but he doesn't ever hate us. 
He's just testing us. He tests the one he loves. It's for our good. And without tests, we don't have opportunities to reject sin. We don't have opportunities to fight battles for the name of Christ. Choose greater glories over lesser glories. James says that we should count it all joy when we meet trials or tests of various kinds, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that these tests produce something in us. He calls it steadfastness, the ability to stand strong when you hit the next battle. That's what trials are for. It's to teach you to stand strong so that you can stand even stronger the next time, right? God doesn't test us the way, like, so there's two kinds of testing that I can think of that it's not that, right? Like my kids test me, like they test my patience, right? <laughs> they, they test the boundaries. Like I tell them no, and they're like, is that really a no? Like, let's see, is it really a no, right? That's a kind of testing that God is not doing. The other kind of testing he's not doing is like, in a lab, we test things to like understand them better. He's not seeking to understand anything better. The test is for us, for our good, right? And Paul similarly talks about this kind of struggle. He says that when he was struggling, when he was being tested, he prayed to God that he would take the test away, take the struggle away. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says, all the more gladly, I'll boast in my weakness. Right? We see uh, Adam was tested with the fruit. We see Abraham was tested with Isaac. We see Moses was tested with, man, everything in the kitchen sink. I mean, God put him through the ringer. He was tested a lot. We even see Jesus was tested. Matthew 4.1, it says that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Right? And we have to be careful to say the Spirit wasn't doing the tempting. God doesn't tempt anyone himself directly. He doesn't want us to fall. But the Spirit was leading Jesus to be tempted, and the devil was happy to do the tempting. And so it's not that he was led to be tempted that he would fall, but that he would triumph over Satan in this. That's the sense in which God tests us. He allows us to be tempted, not that we would fail and fall, but that we would triumph over it. And then verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. The portion of their cup. This often refers to God dealing out judgment on the wicked in scripture. But in the most basic sense, it's just this is what God will deal out to you. We see this language of the cup, the portion, the lot. Right? And sometimes it's positive, right? Psalm 16, David says that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance from the Lord, so sometimes it's positive. We even see uh, Psalm 23, very famous psalm, obviously, of David. David says, in the presence of my enemies, again, we got that in the presence, I'm not running. In the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. So it's not always negative, this idea of the cup. But the vast majority of the time, like in Psalm 11, this cup, this cup imagery is one of severe judgment. Specifically here, we see fire, sulfur, scorching wind. We see this imagery used all throughout the Bible. The first place you see it used is Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. We see it again in Ezekiel 38. It says this, With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. 
so that I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the eyes of many nations that they will know that I am the Lord. This is a a favorite way of judging the enemy. Revelation 14, we see another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and who receives the mark of its name. And then the last time we see this, this idea of fire and sulfur is Revelation 21. As for the cowardly, like David's counselor here, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the portion, the cup, the inheritance of the wicked. And David knows it. He's confident in their outcome. We hope and we pray that the enemies of God will repent. We, we hope and pray that God would open the eyes of their heart to see the glories and beauty of the gospel and that they would be uh, adopted, sanctified, saved, given grace just like we have because we are the wicked, as Seth talked about last week. That we know that Jesus said on the night he was going to die that, or betrayed, um, you know, if, if you could take this cup from me. That's the cup Jesus drank for us that of this judgment and this fire upon us. He, he drank it to the bottom that there would be none left for us. But if it's their business to attack and scheme against the kingdom of God and they will not repent, we certainly do not need to fear them. If anything, we should pity the wicked. How do we know this? How do we know that this is their certain outcome? It's based upon what David hangs his hope for the defeat of his enemies in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, for, meaning the reason all of that is true, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright shall behold his face. So what is the ground of our hope? What is the ground of our hope that we don't need to worry about our enemies, their judgment and their end is certain, and our glory, our victory is certain. He bases it on the character of God. The Lord is righteous. The righteousness of God is a certainty and therefore the just judgment of the wicked is a certainty. And then who are the upright? He talks about the upright here. The the counselor talks about the upright, that that's who they're, they're pulling their bow back, ready to shoot the upright. David talks about the upright beholding the face of God. Who is that? As Seth preached last week, apart from Christ, it's not us. (laughs) Apart from Christ, the only upright man that ever lived is Christ. Right? And so, but in Christ, by faith in him, his perfect life he lived on our behalf, his his vicarious death on our behalf, that he took our sins, paid for them with his death, rose again in victory, he gets to give out that status of upright in heart to us. And he gets to sanctify us and make us continually more and more upright in heart. And so the only upright man who ever lived is Jesus, but he gives his uprightness, his righteousness, his righteous standing before God, he gifts that to us by faith. And apart from Christ, we only have the same destiny as everyone else, burning coals, a scorching wind, and a lake of fire and sulfur. So what is our hope? Where do we fix our eyes? He says, the, day, the days of the wicked are numbered because God is on his throne, he's in heaven, and he sees. He sees and he tests, right? 
he will judge. And so instead of listening to the cowardly counselor who tells us, he says, behold, one thing, David says, behold, another. So the cowardly counselor says, behold, the wicked. That's actually where he says to put your eyes. He says, behold, the wicked. If you look at uh, verse two, he says, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrows to the string. So he's saying, look at how bad it is. Behold the wicked. But David says in verse 7, Now the righteous behold the face of the Lord. David's whole source of strength and hope and courage and that lion-heartedness that he has comes from where he fixes his gaze. He doesn't behold the wicked. He knows they're there. He'll fight them and he'll win. But he doesn't behold the wicked. He beholds the Lord, the King of Kings. And so in closing, I want to give you four charges, four words of, of go forth and do. <laughs> First, sing and memorize the Psalms. It's pretty simple. If there's any encouragement or comfort that you got from this text, from my sermon, from singing Psalm 11 that we did a minute ago, uh, if there's any encouragement or comfort from that, then good. But this is such a small portion of our week. This hour, hour and a half that we meet together on Sundays, it's such a small portion of our week. And it's likely to be the most encouraging time in your walk with the Lord of your week. And so you need that ammo. You need your sword sharpened for when the times are tough, right? When, you're, uh, when you see another so-called Christian deny their faith on social media and your heart is discouraged, you need the Psalms in your back pocket. You need the war songs of the church ready to go, right? If you're a mom and you're changing the kids' clothes for the third or fourth time just that morning, right, and you're feeling discouraged, you need the Psalms to give you courage to keep going, right? Um, when, you, when you hear again someone deny the authority of Christ at work and call him into question, you need that fire in your heart. You need the Psalms. And so you may need Psalm 11 in that moment to be the sword for the battle. It's seven verses, just memorize it. If you don't like Psalm 11, pick another one. Memorize Psalm 23, whatever it is. And like I said, the band played, you know, uh, a, a version of Psalm 11 set to music. Memorize that, sing it all throughout the week. It will put fire and courage into your bones. Our worship is our warfare, and the Psalms are the war songs of the church. So first, sing and memorize Psalms. Second, fight hard. Fight hard. The, 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 the truths of Psalm 11 can help us to fight the good fight, wage the good warfare, and not lose heart. The story ends with victory. Amen? Jesus wins in the end. This is very good news, right? We can know with certainty, as God is certain, that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. We started this year actually with me preaching from a psalm, Psalm 2. And similarly, we see in Psalm 2, the wicked against the king, Jesus. And the options he's given, or that he gives to them, is the wicked can repent and trust with reverent love in Jesus, kiss the son lest you perish. So option one for the wicked is kiss the son, right? Bend the knee, kiss the ring, swear fealty to Jesus. Option two, and, and remember, we're all the wicked, but option two is perish, period. Full stop, end of sentence. Those are your two options for the wicked. There is no option three that says the wicked might win. <laughs> this is really good news. There's no option three. They get to bend the knee, 
Swear fealty to Jesus, come in like sons and daughters, long lost, into the kingdom and sit at the table and eat the bread and wine with us. That is good news. But option two is, if you don't want to do that, (laughs) I got nothing left for you, it's perish. There's no option three that says, or they might win, I don't know. That's it, right? And so if you were certain of losing, like the cowardly counselor seemed to be, what would your counsel be? Run and hide, batten down the hatches, don't hope for a lot, don't try and do a lot, just wait, just wait to die, or wait for Jesus to return, don't try and do much. You'd give up altogether if you thought that losing was certain. But how hard would you fight, church, if you knew that winning was certain? We would fight with everything we have. And that's the truth. It's certain. Jesus wins in the end. He wins. And so you should fight with everything you have, knowing that we wage our warfare in a certain war, a certain outcome. So first, sing and memorize the psalm. Second, fight hard. Third, build your house. Build your house. In Jeremiah 29, there was these false prophets in Israel coming and delivering false news. God had said, you guys are going to be in exile for a while. <laughs> I'm putting you in exile. You're in time out for a while. So figure that out while you're there. And the false prophets instead, as false prophets want to do, wanted to come and say things that people wanted to hear. Because I don't know about you, but if you knew you were going to be in exile for 70 years, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to hear that, right? Because again, God wins the war in the end, but there are going to be battles you lose. There's going to be times when it's like, yeah, I guess we're just in exile for 70 years. And that's not fun. That's a, that's a bitter providence, right? And so there was false prophets coming and saying, no, 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 we're going to get out of here soon. No, no. I know God said that, but I have a new word from the Lord that says something different. You're going to get to escape soon. You don't have to build or fight or endure, wage war, build culture, build kingdom. You can escape real soon. And so what happens when you think you're about to be done? What happens when you think you're going to leave? Kind of check out, right? Anybody been like a week from graduation? (laughs) You're just... (laughs) I'm not even a person anymore. Like, I'm just, like, it's just colors at that point. I'm just waiting for it all to pass by and finish, right? Or if you've ever put in your two weeks at a job, put in your two weeks notice, <laughs> like, yeah, I worked the 40 hours each week, but I don't know how much you got out of me at that point, right? I'm, I'm ready for the next thing. I'm done, right? It's hard. It's very hard to stay focused and to work hard where you are if you think you're just about to leave. And these false prophets were having that effect on God's people. Similarly, we saw in the New Testament, there were people that thought Jesus was about to return right now. So they quit all their jobs, they stopped making money, they stopped feeding or uh, eating and, and, and making food. And so he was like, well, if they won't work, don't feed them, <laughs> you know, right? So this is, this is a common problem for God's people. But we see in Jeremiah 29, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Don't decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where you live, where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie and they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So putting down roots 
getting married, having kids, faithfully attending a church for generations is warfare. That's the prescribed warfare from God to his people. Committing yourself to a people and a place that God has you is the spiritual equivalent of loading the cannons and firing them downfield. And this is true whether you're single or married, right? Whether you have kids now or not. He's commanding you, though, to build up your house. Build your house and pray that God would expand your tent. The enemy in our war, and I would say even the well-meaning Christian, cowardly counselor, would tell you not to build, but to run, to hide, to batten down the hatches. But God says, build. Build your houses, plant your vineyards, have, have kids. Children are an arrow in the hand of the warrior. Build your house joyfully and confidently, knowing that the simple means of being faithful at your church and with your friends and family and at your work is the mighty means of war that God has prescribed for his people. So sing and memorize psalms, fight hard, build your house. Last one, endure faithfully. When the going gets tough, and it's tough, Right? When the going gets tough, when the battle seems lost, you can know that God is our refuge. We will win the war, but we are not promised every battle. Following his will, though, is the safest move. When the wicked look like they're prospering, you can know that God hates the wicked, he sees it all, and they're going to lose. The upright will see his face. The math is very simple. We shouldn't be moved by this, right? I love that the cowardly counselor, again, he begins by telling David, behold, behold the wicked and their bending of the bow. They're gonna shoot arrows at us, David, right? But David ends the psalm by saying, your eyes are in the wrong place. Your gaze is fixed on the wrong thing. Your focus as it relates to the upright is on the wrong thing. The upright may get shot at. The upright may get stabbed in the back, that's true, but the upright will behold the face of the Lord. The counselor here, the cowardly counselor, is focused on earth and on the wicked and all that the upright might lose. But David is focused on beholding the Lord. He's focused on heaven, he's focused on the Lord, and he's focused on all that the upright will gain, gain, gain. Beholding the face of your king, hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, that should empower us to live faithfully and to endure. And when the battle comes and the wicked bend their bow and fit their arrows to the string, we are empowered to say with David, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne in heaven. His eyes see. And fire and sulfur will be the portion of their cup, but the upright will behold the face of the Lord. Fight hard, build your house, endure faithfully. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, I pray that it does put fire and courage into our hearts, that it would encourage us to, to love your word, to memorize it, to sing it, to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as you command us to. I pray that your word would help us to fight hard, knowing that we're fighting a winning battle, that the enemy only has gates and we will kick them in. We pray that all of us would put down roots, that we'd get into each other's lives, that we'd practice hospitality, that we'd build our house, that we'd expand our tent, all for your name, all for your kingdom, that we'd see generations of faithful Christians um, coming, flowing out of this church for your kingdom. We pray that you'd help us to endure faithfully, that when the battle is hard, 
when it seems lost, that we would not fix our eyes on what the wicked are doing or the arrows that they've fixed, but that we would fix our eyes on heaven, knowing that that's where you sit, that's where you judge, and that's where you're sovereignly turning all things for your good and for our good, for those who are called according to your purpose. And we know that all of this is accomplished only by Christ who drank the cup for us, that he took our portion when we were the wicked, when we had our lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God, that he drank the cup and he offered grace and that you gave us the gift of faith. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name, amen.